there are many moments in the film, and this is why it's it's probably worth looking at as well, uh, that portray the the very claustrophobic, big brother, totalitarian, dangerous um, environment that was Soviet Russia in the 30s. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Mind Matters. Uh, today's going to be uh, a fun one. Uh, fasten your seatbelts, buckle up. Prepare to get triggered. Prepare to get triggered. Uh, yesterday, or no, Tuesday night, we watched uh, a movie called Mr. Jones. It came out in 2019 um, and was about the alleged Russian uh, Holodomor. Is that how you say it? Holodomor. Holod Close enough. Close enough. Um, basically the intentional, uh, famine and destruction of the agriculture in Ukraine to destroy Ukrainian nationalists and nationalism. So the movie goes through, uh, the steps that, uh, well, it follows Gareth Jones, who was a, uh, foreign minister, uh, who, advisor. foreign advisor, who, uh, went to the Ukraine, and, at least in the movie, he went to the Ukraine uh, to try and find the truth about where Stalin was getting all of this money for uh, rebuilding uh, and doing all of this uh, great infrastructure building in uh, in Russia, Moscow, St. Petersburg, and so on. Um, and, you know, it just follows him as he's going through Ukraine and, and revealing the the truth as to what was really going on and where Stalin was getting all of this money and what was going, uh, what was really happening in Ukraine, uh, why no one was allowed there. Um, it was an interesting movie, uh, well done in a, a lot of respects, but one problem was that it was uh, written. The screenplay was written by uh, someone who has a very anti-Russian stance and in that way it it is a a piece of anti-russian propaganda um so that was kind of the movie and we wanted to dis discuss some of the topics brought up in the movie and then also the holodomor itself um so with that all said who wants to well, jump in? okay so first i thought it was a, a really good movie i enjoyed it uh just a few parts that i thought were kind of uh uh, just a few parts that annoyed me just strictly for, I don't know whether it was the acting or just the, the delivery of a, of a line or two, but for the most part, I, most part I enjoyed it. A bit of background, um, the screenwriter was Andrea Chalupa, sister of Alexandra Chalupa, I believe, who was knee-deep in Russiagate. So they're, uh, they're both um, either, well, they're, they're both of, of Ukrainian descent and have a very um, so pro-Ukrainian stance, and of course, the the Ukrainians, especially since uh, 2014, and of course in the lead up to 2014, um, well, l much longer than that, um, a lot of a lot of groups of Ukrainians have um, kind of a pretty virulent anti-Russian stance, and f you can understand why to a large degree. And so that's kind of where she's coming from. You can t check out her Twitter page and 
and see how uh, I was just reading some of her tweets and uh, there were a couple from a few years ago when Russiagate was still in full swing talking about how she had intelligence community sources who were telling her that they that they knew that uh, that the Russians were had uh, developed Donald Trump as a as a source for like 10 years and were blackmailing him with uh, with uh, sexual compromat which is kind of like steel dossier nonsense so she's she's pretty much a propagandist um online and uh and her with her sister's involvement in um pretty pretty closely involved in a lot of the Russiagate accusations and operating behind the scenes and doing that kind of stuff um you know i i, I don't i don't uh, think she has the best of motivations and yet the the movie itself and this and the the script i thought was um if i hadn't i didn't know that she'd written it before watching the movie we just uh, we just kind of went into it blind and then one of us noticed the noticed her name at the end and says hey is that chalupa i recognize that name so then we did a little reading on her but if i would have known beforehand i don't think my opinion would have changed very much of the movie because the movie itself was i thought remarkably not russian anti-russian propaganda in the sense that um it could have been or it could have been a lot worse i was expecting it to be a lot worse in the russian anti-russian propaganda department then when i found out that she that she wrote it mm-hmm. i expected it i retroactively <laughs> expected it to be even worse um because for the most part it is a story about jones and duranty duranty was a new york times writer stationed in moscow and jones as you mentioned was like an advisor to I believe foreign, yeah, Lloyd George, foreign minister. I believe he was foreign minister. Uh, I can't remember for sure what it, yeah. Yes. Foreign affairs secretary. Mm-hmm. Um, or he, no, uh, Jones was foreign affairs secretary, secretary, prime minister, David Lloyd George. Um, so I guess that, yeah, I don't know a lot about British poli- uh, political positions. So maybe he was pretty much essentially foreign minister um, or at least something very close to that. So the story is about them, and there's a whole lot of background to to who these guys were as well. But for the most part, it follows Jones as he basically gets fired and then decides to make this trip to to Russia to interview Stalin. And while he's there, he finds out through some of his fellow journalist sources that there's a big story. And so it's kind of like a, a bit of almost like a spy drama as he cultivates a few sources and finds out where to go and, and talks with a, a Soviet official who, who gets him a trip to Ukraine. And then he kind of evades his handler and takes a trek through the, the villages in Kharkov. And that's pretty much how it plays out. You see, you only, you only, in, you only see a few Soviet officials and you only fee, see a few um, like, Soviet police officers. For the most part, it's him interacting with other Americans or British people or um, or peasants, essentially. So the the potential was there for a, a much better propaganda piece, and it ended up being pretty concise and uh, you know limited to telling this story. Now, where I think the propaganda element is is outside of the movie, because a lot of people 
well, most people aren't aware of the famine, of Stalin's famine, because people uh, people in the West, I know I never learned anything about communism and uh, anything bad that any communists did when I was in school. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't familiar with it as a, as a kid, and I'm sure most adults aren't. Um, most people have heard of the Holocaust, of course, and even then, um, I see polls and, you know, I see a story at least every year on the declining number of university students and, like, grade school students who have, who have even heard of the Holocaust and know what that was. So when you consider that pretty much all of our, all of the, the West's knowledge of so-called evil regimes is, um, is directed towards Nazism, and then you consider how few people, how few young people are, even know about the Holocaust, you can imagine how few people actually know about something like the, the, fam the famine of 1932-33. So... All that's well. So before moving on, I'll just summar summarize my thoughts on the movie that I thought it was thought it was pretty well done. I liked the acting, and it was good to see um, George Orwell <laughs> make an appearance. Mm -hmm. So the guy that uh, the guy that played Uncle Benjamin in Game of Thrones um, stars in a in a supporting role as a young George Orwell in the in the early thirties. With uh, with some voiceovers of excerpts from Animal Farm. So, well, before we move on to any history, did you have any more thoughts on the actual film itself? Well, yeah, I thought that. Um, so, I think it's a good film, uh, in the sense that it brings attention in a way that, well, you you come to identify quite a bit with the protagonist, who is this. Uh, presented as this kind of undersecretary to Lloyd George, this, this once powerful or still semi-powerful figure in the British government, who at the start of the film you learn uh, Mr. Jones has just come off of an interview with Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer himself, on a plane ride, which, uh, which Mr. Jones was savvy enough to... Uh, engineer and insinuate himself into in order to discuss uh, the, the plans that uh, Adolf Hitler had with Europe. And that's a historically correct fact. And what he presents in the story is, uh, and, and happens to be correct, is that he, uh, you know, the, the Fuhrer was, you know, planning to, to do a lot more. Uh, and Mr. Jones realizes that uh, the Reichs Reichstag fire uh, was, in fact, uh, used as a, a kind of power grab for the Nazi party. And as he explains all this to, his, uh, to, to the team, uh, to the group that works under Lloyd George, his boss, you know, you see a lot of guffaws and laughs. It's like, oh, you know, yeah, very good young chap, uh, sure. And so he's presented as this kind of insightful, uh, big picture kind of uh, hero protagonist who, who, can, who has a nose and uh, intuition for the bigger picture of what's developing in Europe. And of course, it's a well-acted role and, and he's quite sympathetic. 
And so when he connives to uh, go to, to Russia to arrange a interview with Stalin, it's with the purpose of communicating to Stalin just how big a threat he anticipates Hitler's going to be and that he feels, you know, he wants to introduce the idea that uh, Soviet Russia should make a kind of alliance with, uh, with England against Hitler. So it's out of this kind of, um, uh, this vision that he has, this impetus to do good, to, you know, warn the world, to protect Europe, that he intends to uh, go to Russia and try and arrange um, this interview with Stalin as a stringer, as an independent journalist, um, and and stumbles upon this uh, this kind of um, this raping of the Ukraine and its wealth, its breadbasket, its wheat, which, as Adam mentioned earlier, is what. Mr. Jones realizes is actually paying for all of the new industry and infrastructure that's making Russia or Soviet Russia successful to the extent that it is. So uh, that that was quite interesting in and of itself. And if you didn't know more about the context of Holdemore um, or the fact that you know Stalin wasn't only uh, exploiting the Ukraine, but he was exploiting his own people. He was, you know, he's basically a, uh, to some degree, destroying his own infrastructure in order to build it up in in the way that the the party had taken over, uh, all sorts of things and not always competently. So I think I'll leave it at there. Um, for now, we'll continue on with our look at this. Okay, well, a few things to say to that, but first I want to get into some of the, some of what was actually going on, some background. So, I don't know, I don't know how much of, how much of the, the details and like motivations and things like that dep- depicted in the movie were accurate or not, or how much, how much were just, you know, creative license to insert to make a, uh, a good narrative. So, um, but what we do have are some of the original reports because what happened, at least the way it's presented in the movie, um, right around the time that, uh, Jones was in Russia, the Soviets arrested six British that were over there, like providing, you know, guidance for industrialization and things like that. And the, the way it's presented is that they were, they were captured and then held as hostages so that Jones wouldn't write about what he discovered in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So the, the actual engineers being arrested was, was true. And there was this, there was a conflict as uh, or, uh, you know, an, in, uh, a, an international, what would you call it? Um, like dispute, you know, between England and Soviet union about these guys who were eventually released. But, so in the so in the movie it's presented as he's got this choice he can either um, shut up and not say anything and save these engineers or tell the truth and he has this little conversation with George Orwell 
who uh, who tells him, "Oh, you should just tell the truth." I think, and so I don't I don't think I, I doubt that's accurate, but um, because uh, his initial press release, in fact, came out like two days after he left uh, or arrived in Berlin after getting out of Russia. But I'll read a bit about what Jones actually, the, the report that Jones actually made. Because this is a bit more of the story. I mentioned Durante. We haven't talked about him yet. Durante, the New York Times guy. But here is or here are a few excerpts from the press release uh, that Jones um, wrote in and released in 1933 on uh, March 29th. So it was titled... Famine grips Russia, millions dying. Idle on, ri- idle on rise, says Britain. So he starts, uh, Russia today is in the grip of a famine, which is proving as disastrous as the catastrophe of 1921 when millions died, reported Gareth Jones, Foreign Affairs Secretary to former Prime Minister David Lloyd George of Great Britain, who arrived in Berlin this morning en route to London after a long walking tour through the, through the Ukraine and other districts in the Soviet Union. Mr. Jones, who speaks Russian fluently, is the first foreigner to visit the Russian countryside since the Moscow authorities forbade foreign correspondents to leave the city. His report, which he will deliver to the Royal Institute of International Affairs tomorrow, explains the reason for this prohibition. Famine on a colossal scale, impending death of millions from hunger, murderous terror, and the beginnings of serious unemployment in a land that had hitherto prided itself on the fact that every man had a job. This is the summary of Mr. Jones's first-hand observations. He told the Evening Post, The arrest of the British engineers in Moscow is a symbol of panic in consequence of conditions worse than 1921. Millions are dying of hunger. The trial, beginning Saturday, of the British engineers is merely a pendant to the recent shooting of 35 prominent workers in, El- in, in agriculture, including the vice commissar of the Ministry of Agriculture, and is an attempt to check the popular wrath at the famine, which haunts every district of the Soviet Union. Everywhere was the cry, there is no bread, we are dying. The, c- the cry came from every part of Russia, from the Volga, Siberia, White Russia, the North Caucasus, Central Asia. I tramped through the Black Earth region because that was once the richest farmland in Russia and because the correspondents have been forbidden to go there to see for themselves what is happening. Skip a bit, and then at the end. In short, Mr. Jones concluded, the, con- the collectivization policy of the government and the resistance of the peasants to it have brought Russia to the worst catastrophe since the famine of 1921 and have swept away the population of whole districts. Coupled with this, the prime reason for the breakdown, he added, is the terror, lack of skill, and collapse of transport and finance. Unemployment is rapidly, r- rapidly increasing, etc., etc. So that's his report. Now enter um, Durante, Walter Durante, for the New York Times, and his article. It came out a couple days, or the day after. Russians hungry, but not starving. In which he says, In the middle of the diplomatic duel between Great Britain and the Soviet Union over the accused British engineers... There appears from a British source a big scare story in the American press about famine in the Soviet Union, with, quote, thousands already dead and millions menaced by death and starvation. Its author is Gareth Jones, who was a former secretary to David Lloyd George and who recently spent three weeks in the Soviet Union and reached the conclusion that the country was, quote, on the verge of a terrific smash, as he told the writer. 
Mr. Jones is a man of keen and active mind, and he has taken the trouble to learn Russian, which he speaks with considerable fluency. But the writer thought Mr. Jones's judgment was somewhat hasty, and asked him on what it was based. It appeared he had made a forty-mile walk through villages in the neighborhood of Harkov, and had found conditions sad. I suggested that was a rather inadequate cross-section of a big country, but nothing could shake his conviction of impending doom. Skip a bit to the, uh, another section, saw no one dying. But to return to Mr. Jones, he told me that there was virtu virtually no bread in the villages he had visited, and that the adults were haggard, gaunt, and discouraged, but that he had seen no dead or dying animals or human beings. I believed him because I knew it to be correct, not only of some parts of the Ukraine, but of sections of the North Caucasus and Lower Volga regions, and, for that matter, Kazakhstan, where the attempt to change the livestock raising or the stock raising nomads of that type and the period of Abraham and Isaac into 1933 collective grain farmers has produced the most deplorable results. It is all too true that the novelty and mismanagement of collective farming, plus the quite efficient conspiracy of Fyodor M. Konor and his associates in agricultural commissariats, have made a mess of Soviet food progression. Konar was, was executed for sabotage. But, to put it brutally, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs, and the Bolshevist leaders are just as indifferent to the casualties that may be involved in their drive towards socialization as any general during the World War who ordered a costly attack in order to show his superiors that he and his division possessed the proper soldierly spirit. In fact, Bolsheviki are more indifferent because they are animated by fanatical conviction. Since I talked to Mr. Jones, I have made exhaustive inquiries about this alleged famine situation. I have inquired in Soviet commissariats and in foreign embassies with their network of consuls, and I have tabulated information from Britons working as specialists and from my personal connections, foreign and Russian. So he goes on to say d disease mortality is high, um, where he, uh, he basically says there are some deaths from disease, but, quote, there is no actual starvation or deaths from starvation. But there is widespread mortality from diseases due to malnutrition. In short, conditions are definitely bad in certain sections, the Ukraine, North Caucasus, and Lower Volga. The rest of the country is on short rations, but nothing worse. These conditions are bad, but there is no famine. So that was Durante's response. Durante, by the way, uh, won a Pulitzer Prize. I'm not, uh, I can't remember what the Pulitzer was for, um, if it was for these reports or, or something else, but uh, that's Durante. So, one more historical document that I'll read from. This is Jones's reply to Durante. To the editor of the New York Times. On my return from Russia at the end of March, I stated in an interview in Berlin that everywhere I went in the villages, in the Russian villages, I heard the cry, there is no bread, we are dying, and that there was famine in the Soviet Union, menacing the lives of millions of people. Walter Durante whom I must thank for his continued kindness and help, helpless, helpfulness to hundreds of American and British visitors to Moscow, immediately cabled a denial of the famine. He suggested that my judgment was only based on a 40-mile tramp through villages. He stated that he had inquired in Soviet commissariats and in, in the foreign embassies and had come to the conclusion that there was no famine, but that there was a serious food shortage throughout the country. Uh, then he just quotes what I just read. Jones continues... While, par while partially agreeing with my statement, he implied that my report was a scare story and compared it with certain fantastic prophecies of Soviet downfall. 
he also made the strange suggestion that I was forecasting the doom of the Soviet regime, a forecast I have never ventured. I stand by my statement that Soviet Russia is suffering, suffering from a severe famine. It would be foolish to draw this conclusion from my tramp through a small part of vast Russia, although I must remind Mr. Duranty that it was my third tr visit to Russia, that I devoted four years of university life to the study of the Russian language and history, and that on this occasion alone I visited in all 20 villages, not only in Ukraine, but also in the Black Earth District and in the Moscow region, and that I slept in peasants' cottages and did not immediately leave for the next village. My first evidence was gathered from foreign observers. Since Mr. Duranty introduces consuls into the discussion, a thing I am loath to do, for they are official representatives of their countries and should not be quoted, may I say that I discussed the Russian situation with between 20 and 30 consuls and diplomatic representatives of various nations and that their evidence supported my point of view but they are not allowed to express their views in the press and therefore remain silent. Journalists, on the other hand, are allowed to write, but the censorship has turned them into masters of euphemism and understatement. Hence they give famine the polite name of food shortage, and starving to death is, is softened down to read widespread mortality from diseases due to malnutrition. Consuls are not so reticent in private conversation. My second attempt, or my second evidence, was based on conversations with peasants who had migrated into the towns from various parts of Russia. Peasants from the rich, richest parts of Russia are coming into the towns for bread. Their story of the deaths in the villages from starvation and of the death of the greater part of their cattle and horses was tragic, and each conversation corroborated the previous one. Third, my evidence was based upon letters written by German colonists in Russia, appealing for help to their compatriots in Germany. Quote, my four brothers, my four brothers, my brother's four children have died in hunger. We have had no bread for six months. If we do not get help from abroad, there is nothing left to, but to die of hunger. Those are typical passages from these letters. And he goes on again with uh, statements from peasants themselves, um, not from kulaks, but just from regular peasants. And then I'll just read how he, how he ends it. Mr. Duranti says that I saw in the villages no dead human beings or animals. That is true. But one does not need a particularly nimble mind or brain to grasp that even in the Russian famine districts, the dead are buried and there, are, and there the dead animals are devoured. May I, in conclusion, congratulate the Soviet Foreign Office on its skill in concealing the true situation in the USSR? Moscow is not Russia, and the sight of well-fed people there tends to hide the real Russia. So that was his pretty scathing remark to Durante. And um, I've seen online people uh, disparaging um, either, you know, both um, Durante for pretty good reasons and Jones because of his uh, political connections because uh, he was essentially uh, part of the what could be called the British deep state. Mm -hmm. But what I'd like to do is ask, well, who was actually right? Well, it turns out that Jones was actually correct because everything he said has been verified in, in history, in the documents that have been released since the 90s in Russia, and Durante has been exposed as a total fraud. Um, there's a pretty good summary in, uh, in Wikipedia with some quotations he'll read. Um, this is in, the, in uh, the article on Durante on Wikipedia. Durante has been criticized for deferring to Stalin and the Soviet Union's official propaganda rather than reporting news, both when he was living in Moscow and later. 
For example, he later defended Stalin's Moscow trials of 1938, which were staged to eliminate potential challenges to Stalin's authority. He published reports stating, there is no famine or actual starvation, nor is there likely to be, and any report of a famine in Russia is today an exaggeration or malignant propaganda. Um, now, before I... Yeah, so one more thing. So, this is in this section, what Durante knew and when. It was clear, meanwhile, from Durante's comments to others, that he was fully aware of the scale of the calamity. In 1934, he privately reported to the British Embassy in Moscow that as many as 10 million people may have died, directly or indirectly, from famine in the Soviet Union in the previous year. Both British intelligence and American engineer Zero Witkin, who worked in the USSR from 1932 to 34, confirmed that Durante knowingly misrepresented information about the nature and scale of the famine. There are some indications that Durante's deliberate misdirection concerning the famine may have been a result of uh, may have been the result of duress. Conquest, an author, historian, believed Durante was being blackmailed over his sexual proclivities, which are depicted in um, in the movie. And then finally, in his 1944 book, Durante wrote in a chastened tone about his 1932 to 34 reporting, but he offered only a Stalinist defense of it. He admitted that people starved including not just class enemies, but also loyal communists. But he says that Stalin was forced to order the requisitions to equip the Red Army enough to deter an imminent, uh, an imminent Japanese invasion. Um, and needless to say, there aren't really any historians who think that was the main motivation for what was going on. So there's that. Now, how is this presented um, like nowadays? On the one hand... Um, I'll, I'll give a, I'll give a bit from this book. This is one that I recommended on last week's show or whenever, uh, whenever the last week, whenever the last show was. And because, uh, I mentioned the Chalupas and the Ukrainians, the Ukraine, uh, the, the hardcore nationalist Ukrainians have a particular interpretation and view of the Holodomor, as they call it, which Adam mentioned at the beginning. And I can summarize this view by reading a short passage from Han here. Rather than portraying the famine as a Soviet attempt to build communism through the collectivization of all agriculture in the USSR, killing some three million, Yushchenko, Yushchenko's ideologists, um, Yushchenko was the leader of Ukraine um, early 2000s, I believe, um, his ideologists put forward the interpretation that the famine was an attempt to commit genocide and targeted at the Ukrainian nation alone. In this Ukrainian nationalist view, the Holodomor was not a consequence of the communist ideology and Stalin's practice of it, but rather part of a centuries-long Russian effort to destroy the Ukrainian nation. While spending much time and energy attempting to revise and deny the real history of the Holocaust in Ukraine, the Jewish Holocaust, the Yushchenko government spent even more effort endeavoring to win international rec recognition of the 1930s famine as a, quote, Ukrainian Holocaust, despite the numerous other territories and peoples of the USSR who suffered from the very same famine. So there is, among Ukrainian nationalists, a push, as Adam mentioned, to portray the, the famine of 32-33 as a deliberate policy to kill off the Ukrainians, essentially, to destroy the Ukrainian nation, a, a deliberate genocide. And 
just on the face of it, the, the, the claim is absurd for two very simple reasons, and that's without even getting into all the details. One, the one I just mentioned, is that the, the famine didn't just affect the Ukraine, and as Durante, Weasley as he was, and Jones say, it was, uh, well, the, the two primary regions affected were Ukraine and the North Caucasus, but it was all over. The Volga region in, in Siberia, there, there were famines all over the place. It was just Ukraine and the, and the North Caucasus that were the hardest hit. The other reason that it's absurd to think that this was a deliberate genocide, because genocide is a particular word with a particular defini definition, as Han says, ethnic Ukrainians played the lead role in Ukraine in carrying out the green and, and seed grain confiscations and overall collectivization process. For these actions and the crimes that accompanied them, ethnic Russians and Jews are often scapegoated. It was Ukrainian commun communists themselves that were in charge in Ukraine for the most part. This was a communist policy from the top, put implemented by local communists. It was not a, a, a genocide of ethnic Russians against ethnic Ukrainians. Yeah. It was a policy of batshit crazy ideas and, to, and malevolence for sure. And, um, and I'd go so far as to say there, w there was a deliberate element to it. They were d like deliberately starved to a degree, but it wasn't, it wasn't a genocide. It wasn't like we're going to kill all of our Ukrainian farmers. That's, that's, uh, it's just ridiculous. But so that's the kind of extreme version of the Holodomor that Andrea Chalupa probably believes in, but th which she didn't interject into the movie for which I'm grateful <laughs> to her. Um, that's one version. Now there's another version and that's the version that it never happened. It's a total myth. And you'll see um, a lot of like leftist idiots who give this line, and of course the 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 revisionist Russian historians who think that the only thing wrong with Stalin was that he was such a great guy, um, never did any anything wrong in his life, and anything that can be interpreted as bad he did for a very good reason. And these guys are as like uh, in my mind as reprehensible as you know the the Hitler lovers out there who defend everything Hitler did. And, um, well, I'm sure people have seen them in comment sections all over the internet. Um, but there's one example of this from Counterpunch, an article by Grover Fur. The Holodomor and the film Bitter Harvest are fascist lies. So he, he devotes this essay to a, uh, a review of the film by this guy Project, um, of the film Bitter Harvest. So this is a different film. Uh, but I'm just going to use it as a, a launching point to get into some of, well, and, and, and as a way of showing the, this, this view of the, the, the famine. So he says, Projects project perpetuates the following falsehoods about the Soviet collectivization of agriculture and the famine of 1932 to 33. One, that in the main, the peasants resisted collectivization because it was a second serfdom. Two, that the famine was caused by forced collectivization. In reality, the famine had environmental causes. Three, that Stalin, the Soviet leadership, deliberately created the famine. Four, that it was aimed at destroying Ukrainian nationalism. And five, that Stalin, the Soviet government, stopped the policy of Ukrainization, uh, the, pro the promotion of a policy to encourage Ukrainian language and culture. Fur writes, none of these claims are true. 
None are supported by evidence. They are simply asserted by Ukrainian nationalist sources for the purpose of ideological justification of their alliance with the Nazis and in participation of, in the Jewish Holocaust, the genocide of Ukrainian Poles, and the murder of Jews, communists, and many Ukrainian peasants after the war. Their ultimate, ultimate purpose is to equate communism with Nazism. Communism is outlawed in today's democratic Ukraine, the USSR with Nazi Germany, and Stalin with Hitler. Um, okay. Uh, I don't see a problem with that. Now, so Fur's view is that the, oh, there may have been a famine, but it was caused entirely by bad weather, essentially. Because Russia had experienced famines in the past pretty regularly, um, just like China did. And that collectivization had nothing to do with it. He writes that, uh, contrary to anti-communist propaganda, most peasants accepted collectivization. Resistance was modest. modest. Acts, acts of outright rebellion were rare. Um, he he uh, explains that agri Soviet agriculture was hit with a combination of environmental catastrophes. Um, he says that uh, the Soviets actually had a good response. Believing at first that, the, that mismanagement and sabotage were the leading causes of a poor harvest, the government removed many party and collective farm leaders. Um, there is no evidence that any were executed, like Mikola in the film. In early February 1933, the Soviet government began to provide massive grain aid to famine areas. The Soviet government also organized raids on peasant farms to confiscate excess grain in order to feed the cities which did not produce their own food. He writes that as if it's a good thing. The Soviet government organized political departments to help peasants in agricultural work, etc., etc. The good harvest of 1933 was brought in by a, considerable, by a considerably smaller population. Since many had died during the famine, others were sick or weakened, and still others had fled to other regions or to, other city, or to the cities. This was, reflects the fact that the famine was caused not by collectivization, government interference, or peasant resistance, but by environmental causes no longer present in 1933. Collectivization of agriculture was a true reform, a breakthrough in revolutionizing Soviet agriculture. There were still years of poor harvests. The climate of the USSR did not change. But thanks to collectivization, there was only one more devastating famine in the USSR, that of 1946-47. to 47 which, as uh, you know, Wheatcroft concludes, was also caused by environmental conditions and, and disruptions of the war. So that's another view of the famine, which is just as much total bullshit as the Holodomor. Um, <laughs> if the, yeah, uh, these people just, uh, they really get me agitated. It's like, okay, total nonsense. Like, and it's, like, this guy would be a really good propagandist because... Like he looks at these at these claims that are untrue, and in a sense, you could argue that they're all un untrue for like technicalities or because of extra clauses and extra premises added onto them. But to say that the famine was not caused by forced collectivization, that there was uh, that no one no uh, that well he, Im he implies that there weren't really executions. How did he put it? Um, that f collective farm leaders or party leaders weren't executed. Um, he mentions nothing about the the mass confiscation of grain, of property, of actual farming produce and equipment, of the, the, the real terror campaign, the mass arrests that were made, mm -hmm. and the fact that, that it was Stalin himself who called it a war on the peasants, because he saw the peasants as being in a war with Soviet 
with the Soviets because they were they were engaging. They were starving the they were starving Russia actually. And when and Stalin was aware of certain of these things going on, it's it's debatable how much he knew and when. He actually, when he had the opportunities and when uh, plans were presented to him that would have relieved s s these conditions over the years, because it wasn't just 1932 to 1933. The grain output, the harvests, were getting smaller and smaller in like the five years before beforehand, to the point where something like um, um, in the the 32 to 33 harvest, they they. They only produced like a sixty percent less, or forty or sixty percent less than the, the the planned quota, what they wanted to produce. So they actually weren't getting as much grain as they needed. And Stalin's response was to take even more. And this is from actual documents. Um, this is a, a biography of Stalin by Oleg Klevniak, and based on um, documents, the actual Russian documents from the time. And I'll just I'll just read some of the the choicest bits. So this is a bit on just collectivization because the process had been going on since 1929, I believe. And this is what Klevniak writes: forced collectivization and ineffective industri industrialization dealt the count dealt the country a blow from which it never fully recovered. Collectivization was not what what Grover first says, you know, a great so social, socialist revolutionizing of agriculture. Give me a break. In 1930 to 1932, hundreds of thousands of wreckers and kulaks were shot in or imprisoned in camps, and more than two million kulaks and their family members were sent into exile. Despite, um, okay, so he's talking about the decline in productivity. Uh, duh, you know, that, that would never happen in collectivization. Between 1928 and 1933, the number of horses, for example, dropped from 32 million to 17 million. Heads of cattle fell from 60 to 33 million and pigs from 22 to 10 million. Despite such declining productivity, the state, the state pumped an ever-growing share of its yield out of the countryside. Now, this is coming up to the end of Stalin's five-year plan. And what does he do? All the numbers are low. He says it's been a roaring success, that the, that the five-year plan has been has been fulfilled ahead of schedule. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, Stalin was a major bullshitter in case ever, anyone hadn't noticed yet. The The five-year targets were not achieved. The, and uh, and the, the five-year plan, uh, as Klevniak calls it, was ruinously inefficient as an approach to industrialization. Um, as for how many died, that is debatable. The Ukrainians... Give, an, uh, give a figure of like 12 million. Right. The, um, the like scholarly approaches give a range anywhere from three to seven million. Mm -hmm. So at the very least, let's say 2.5 million people died. Um, well, actually, I think it's 2.5 million at a minimum in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, um, the, for, the, for the famine as a whole, five to seven million, apparently. Now, if you guys want to like interject and say anything, go ahead because I'm gonna. I can just keep going on, and I but I can get back to it. Do you want me? Well, I'll just jump in for a second. Like it, uh, it, whatever that the the guy from Counterpunch, he reminds me of what we had talked about. I think in like our previous show or yeah. the one before it about the the striptease and not uh, 
and being actively uh, aggravated or agitated by the removal of this romantic sheen from the mm-hmm. uh, from the ideology, and that's exactly what this strikes me as. As like, oh, you can't you know strip away the the gloss of romanticism off of uh, collectivization and socialism and communism because they just want they're because, just trying to do such great things. Yes, they're just trying to do such great and wonderful things. So they it must have not been nearly as bad as what they were talking about and it must have been, you know, at least reasonably okay because they were just trying to do the best that they can. Mm-hmm. And it just oh my god, yeah. Well, I I would just add to that I once got into a discussion with a manager of a communist bookstore and uh had brought up, you know, some of the facts of Stalin's purges and various things. And there was absolutely nothing that could be presented to him uh, in history that would change his views that Stalin was a great guy and that it was, it was a difficult vision that he was trying to, uh, to bring about. So, yes, um, th- there is this kind of uh, narrowness, this do- dogma, this dogmatic approach to the utopian um, vision of politics that many contemporary uh, communists and, and leftists adhere to uh, without without benefit of any of this type of information that would uh, inform their their points of view. I did just want to get back to um, a couple of things because here, um, with with all of those passages, Harrison, you've you've presented two very different um, points of view and and ways that we can look at the the film of Mister Jones and and derive meaning from it and the whole famine of famine of Holodomor itself. Um, so Matthew Errett, a friend of our show, had written a little bit about this. Maybe we'll link to his article uh, in the show description. But it's a very interesting turn of events that in the 50s when the uh, Office of, of Strategic Intelligence or the OSS in the U.S. transformed into the CIA, that there were a great deal of uh, Ukrainian nationalists and fascists that were brought into the Canadian uh, society and had positions of power in various places. And it was those individuals, uh, in some cases, that, that had presented and, and foisted this narrative of you know, Russia's uh, genocide against Ukraine, which was really a tool of Cold War propaganda. And uh, so, so that's how far back this perception, this narrative goes uh, in, in Western uh, thinking and in, in the kind of history of, of contemporary propaganda. Uh, the Banderists were um, propped up by Hitler and the Nazi regime, and God knows they did their their level best to to do a lot of evil in the Ukraine as well. Uh, this was a, a right-wing, needless to say, uh, kind of pseudo-Nazi ideology. Still is. Yes. Um, 
And at some point, maybe we do want to talk about how they play into the, the current events uh, of the past five or 10 years in the Ukraine and, and the Maidan. So in any case, you have, you have that whole uh, side of things, which uh, even if Andrea Chalupa's uh, screenplay didn't overtly allude to, even if it wasn't a virulent attack against Soviet Russia in the, in the form of a, a deliberate genocide, uh, it is interesting that you know there would be this kind of criticism, though though valid in some respects, that 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 it would even be brought up and and tried to be presented as a kind of uh, story about how bad Russia is, because in contemporary politics right now there is no Russian Federation; it doesn't exist. Uh, the, the reforms and the development uh, that we've seen in the past 20 years uh, under the Putin government is, it's meaningless to them. It's still Russia. It's still the evil empire trying to do its worst on the world. And so, uh, again, even if that isn't an, ov- an overt feature of Mr. Jones, the film, uh, it's still think underlying the the motivation for the screenplay and the purpose for getting you know such a good filmmaker as Agnieszka Holland to direct it um and there are some things that that she definitely gets right as as a as an artistic uh vision of Soviet Russia there are many moments in the film and this is why it's it's probably worth looking at as well uh, that portray the the very claustrophobic, big brother, totalitarian, dangerous um, environment that was Soviet Russia in the 30s, uh, with you know individuals from the from the party listening in on phone calls and 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 watching you know the the moves of various journalists and 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 the descriptions of the the murder of one Western journalist who had a story. Uh, where the narrative, you know, was was created to make it seem as though he was, you know, just robbed and killed, when, you know, the implications are are far worse that it was a state-run assassination. So, it's a it's a good it's a good film for those purposes. Um, so then, you know, then then we have this other kind of uh, feature of the of the movie, which is. Uh, the the very you know the very real um, kind of destructive effects of of Stalinism, and but but what it doesn't seem to convey again is just how you know Stalin's approach wasn't specific to Ukraine. It was it was it was this it was this overarching uh, combination of you know lack of competence and and just uh you know features of of collectivization that that just didn't work and and was destructive to the the main body of russia itself so uh it that might have been you know explained a little better in that film and maybe you know for the future we'll look at some other uh 
films and texts that do look at how his his reign was uh, destructive to everybody, including his own. I mean, he had his own purges. He had people who were even loyal to him, but out of out of sheer paranoia and his grip on power, he would eliminate uh, people in his own party um, at at his own whim. The guy was a you know with with the with the exception, I would say, of of helping in a major way defeat Nazi Germany during World War II, the guy was a he was a, it was a monstrosity. Uh, so that that's what I would add to some of that. Mm-hmm. There was, I would say, a there was a lot of good things in the film that I really liked. There was a number of scenes that were really impactful um, that give you a good visceral sense of just the kind of devastation brought on by some of this nonsense of collectivization. Um, But even if, I mean, it's it's just going back to that guy from Counterpunch. It's like, just because it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the Holodomor does not mean that it was all perfectly fine and dandy. Mm-hmm. Like, just because, like, maybe Hitler didn't do absolutely everything that he's alleged to have done uh, to the farthest extent that the claims are made doesn't make him a good guy. Mm-hmm. He's still a piece of shit and a horrible human being. Right. And it's the exact same thing with, with Stalin. Just because it wasn't a genocide you know, in, an intentional, you know, genocide against Ukraine in specific doesn't mean it wasn't mm-hmm. just a total shit show. Right. Yeah. That, uh, I, I was going to print it out. I forgot. But um, George Orwell had written a, a preface for Animal Farm before it came out, which was never published with uh, with the original edition. It was published in a later, you know, collection of, of his work somewhere. I can't remember where, but I read it recently. Uh, someone had included it on a tweet and Twitter. And one interesting thing he'd pointed out, I, I just like the way he, he'd put it. He was talking about the the, nat- the, the nature of the press, the, the British press, in uh, during World War II. Because uh, Animal Farm was published just after World War II. And... He was talking about just how pro-Soviet the press was and how much it, you know, he was disturbed by that because he knew it was actually going on in the Soviet Union. But he pointed out that, that yes, a lot of the anti-Soviet Union press was total garbage. They were making stuff up, exaggerating things. And so, you ha- so he pointed out the, the polarization where you had the pro-Soviet press which was totally idiotic and lying, and the anti-Soviet press, which was totally idiotic and lying, mm-hmm. the, the the actual reality was a total horror show. Yes, but no one was actually talking about it. This that's the case. It's like for for all the people who uh, who find out, this, it must just be something about human nature. Like when you grow up, especially in the West, you have you you have what you learn about World War Two, right? There's a particular narrative. You got good guys versus bad guys. Then you might find out some things about the horrible things that the the, the the good guys did. Right. You know the fire bombing the fire bombing of Dresden, in mm-hmm. addition to many other cities, just mass murder. Mm-hmm. And you f- you find out about all these geopolitical intrigues and all these things going on. And then you come to the bright conclusion: Ah, 
the Nazi must the, the Nazis must have been the good guys. It's like no, <laughs> it's this, it's the exact same thing with the with the communists, and you you see this you see this a lot in um, well, and of course leftist papers like uh, and outlets like Counterpunch, and in the alternative news um, when whenever whenever one side whenever you find out like lies about one side you're 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 whenever your team is ex- what should be your team is exposed as bad guys you automatically side with the other team or mm-hmm. vice versa mm-hmm. and you're automatically like blinded to any of the bad things about that are actually true about the you know, in this case the communists so you find out oh uh, oh, the, the the Western you know intelligence agencies and and governments were actually making up stuff and doing bad things against the communists. Oh, that must mean that everything they've, bad they've ever said about the communists is a lie, and the communists were great guys and never did anything wrong. And the worst thing about Stalin was that he was such a great guy. Um, and again, that's total bullshit. The communists were like total evil. There were there were. Totally evil p- people in other countries too, including Britain mm-hmm. and the United States. Right. It doesn't make the communists any better. In fact, well, um, I'll refrain from from uh, from stating my my uh, my raw opinions. Well, just to just to encapsulate that a little bit, the point being, you know, historical events, contemporary events, are much more complicated, I think, uh, than. They're presented mm-hmm. in in most mainstream news, and uh, it's in it's in getting to you know, and it's and it's hard to know what the complete picture is, even even drawing from what we think are the best resources of information. Uh, but it's in seeing where you know, as you were saying, where you know where the evil exists in the basically good, and where there might be like a strain of good among the basically evil that we get a better picture, a much better picture of, of how things actually work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we have a, a better way of forming our uh, map of reality, uh, our map of power structures and history and where we are right now. Um, when, when we can look back uh, 65, 85 years ago, this is basically something that's occurred 85 years ago. And the repercussions, the, the, the shockwaves, the narratives, the, uh, the dynamics are all, um, they're still reverberating. They're still uh, being kept alive in, in this or that manner. Um, and, and they're still being on, a, on another dimension to it. They're being worked on constructively. In, in some other spheres, uh, you know, one might say, because Putin, Putin has read Solzhenitsyn. He, he's come out to uh, condemn the, the politics of, of Stalin. Uh, he has been able to insightfully make observations about Western liberalism as it exists today and the, and the political developments we see in the U.S. and elsewhere. That uh, is someone who represents a large number of people in the world who has, to some great extent, learned the lessons of history to, to some degree. And, and that is, not that he's perfect, uh, but, but that, is, that is kind of, um, 
it's encouraging. It's, uh, it's, it, it, it kind of renews one faith, one's faith in the ability for, for politics and for political decisions on a, on a very big scale to, uh, to manifest in almost really positive ways. Um, but by the same token, you know, we're, we're seeing developments again in the Ukraine and, and, you know, movements to kind of uh, egg the Ukraine on into uh, stronger relationships to NATO and to the U.S. kind of hegemonic sphere of influence, Belarus as well, and other places, that would seek to keep alive uh, the Cold War politics that should have, well, one could argue it never should have gotten as bad as it did in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Uh, but certainly there is a, a, a streak of, um, of thinking, of, uh, of people in positions of power that would, that would seek to revive this, this, this way of uh, keeping the enemy alive. Because it's in keeping the enemy alive that um, that's their their purpose for living, their raison d'être, if, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, so so <laughs> so you're going to correct me if 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 that wasn't correct. But raison d'être, raison d'être, raison d'être, raison d'être. You get the idea. Um, so that's. You know, in part, why a lot of this is so important. It isn't just a movie. It 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 speaks to uh, a lot of different things in history and unfolding to to our uh, to our awareness as we speak. I think. And I would just say, uh, you know, with all of these different uh, things, like you were talking about, you know, swinging from. Uh, one-sided or from one position finding out some bad things and then switching automatically to the other one. Uh, that does seem to be a facet of human nature that we need to take into consideration at all times uh, because it can really do a number on you. Um, like Gunalp Bay and like, Erturul. Yes, like Gunalp Bay and Erturul. You got to pay attention. Um, and, you know, I was also thinking about, uh, you know, you can have a fundamentalist Christian who then, you know, starts to question... Mm. Uh, their beliefs, and then all of a sudden they become hardcore atheists and uh, kind of nasty people. Uh, not to say all atheists are nasty people, but some can be very uh, uh, vehement and virulent, um, to put it politely. Uh, so that's and that's not good either. That's it's not the it's not even the truth. So that's what it, it should be focused on. Like it, we shouldn't be identified with any particular ideology and we shouldn't be identified with uh, any particular view. Uh, rather, we should uh, take a, a factual approach to it. Um, like, uh, oh shoot, what's his name? Uh, Thomas Sowell. Mm -hmm. Look at the facts yeah. and let the facts lead you where they will. Yeah. And, you know, don't get hung up about it if somebody you thought was, you know, Stunning and brave is actually a cowardly shill. You wanna? Yeah. Speaking of facts, <clears throat> quick facts. Quick facts. I just wanna I wanna list off a, f a few more things from Klevniuk's book 
um, just to give a, a bit more of the, the picture of what was actually going on. So one of the things that uh, for that uh, guy in Counterpunch had said was that, uh, well, that there was very little resistance to collectivization and uh, basically imp implying with that that there was no kind of widespread resistance or anything like that. Well, I'll read a, a, a bit. I'll, re I'll read a few things from here on numerous things. But on that topic, Klevniak writes, The state's interests and those of the peasants were diametrically opposed. The state was extremely aggressive in taking from the countryside as many resources as possible. The peasants, like famine victims all over the world, used the weapons of the weak. They sabotaged the fulfillment of their obligations to the state and tried to stash away stores to feed themselves. Stalin was well aware of the hostility of the forcibly collectivized countryside, but he placed the blame fully on the peasants' shoulders. They had declared war, he, pro he proclaimed, against the Soviet government. Um, they talk about how there were proposals within the Soviet government on how to you know, fix some of these things, like, like replacing confiscation with a system of taxes. So basically, um, basically, instead of taking everything, um, you, you say, okay, we'll take a certain percentage of what you grow and what you harvest, which um, gives an incentive to actually grow, because you know you can keep some of it. And Stalin rejected that. Halevnik writes, he preferred to take as much as possible from the countryside without any constraints. Any concessions that hinted at the misguidedness of the Great Leap were contrary to his nature and politically dangerous to his dictatorship. Um, part of the financing issue, the, the economics, was that, what, like, they didn't touch upon this in the movie, was that the Soviet Union had a huge foreign debt. That's, how, that's one, one way they were able to purchase all this equipment and raw materials. It wasn't just that they were uh, it wasn't just that the grain was Stalin's gold, as you know Durante put it in the movie. Mm -hmm. So they were getting into they were getting into debt and stealing everything from the countryside, um, and not even fulfilling their five-year plan. Klevniak writes: Documents discovered in recent years paint a horrific picture. All food supplies were taken away from the starving peasants. Not only grain, but also vegetables, meat, and dairy products. Teams of marauders, made up of local officials and activists from the cities, hunted down hidden supplies, so-called yamas, holes in the ground, where peasants, in accordance with age-old tradition, kept grain as a sort of insurance against famine. Hungry peasants were tortured to reveal these yamas and other food stores, their family's only safeguard against death. They were beaten, forced out into sub-freezing temperatures without clothing, arrested, or exiled to Siberia. Attempts by peasants dying of hunger to flee to better-off regions were ruthlessly suppressed. Refugees were forced to return to their villages, doomed to slowly perish or be arrested. By mid-1933, some 2.5 million people were in labor camps, prison, or exile. Many of them fared better than those who starved to death in freedom. There are... Um, okay, he points out that no statistics can measure the moral degradation that the famine caused. Secret OGPU and party summaries, OGPU were the, um, what became the NKVD and the, and the KGB, essentially the secret police. So secret OGPU and party summaries, especially during the early months of 1933, this is when Jones was in Ukraine, are filled with accounts of widespread cannibalism. 
These are official reports from the secret police. Mothers murdered their children and deranged activists robbed and tormented the population. And Ukraine and North Caucasus were like the, the breadbasket of, of Russia, of the, of the Soviet Union, providing um, as much as half of all the grain produced in the state. So keep that in mind. <clears throat> um, let's see. Second, uh, this isn't just another... Uh, okay. Stalin saw the crisis of 1932 as the continuation of the war against the peasantry and as a means of consolidating the results of collectivization. And he had a point. In a letter to the Soviet writer Mikhail uh, Sholokov in, uh, on 6th of May 1933, he wrote, The esteemed grain growers were in essence waging a quiet war against the Soviet power, a war by starvation. Mentioned that one earlier. He undoubtedly considered the peasantry of Ukraine and the North Caucasus to be at the forefront of this peasant army battling the Soviet government. These regions had always been hotbeds of anti-Soviet sentiment. And Ukraine had been at the forefront of the anti-Kolkhoz movement in 1930, the anti-collective farm movement. By, by proclaiming grain collection to be a war, Stalin was untying his own hands and the hands of those carrying out his orders. The ideological basis for this war was the Stalinist myth that food difficulties resulted from acts of sabotage by enemies and kulaks. Any suggestion of a link between the crisis and government policy was categorically rejected. You know, as uh, being maliciously exaggerated, another example. And this is, <laughs> this is from uh, the February 1933 Cong Congress of Kolkhoz shock workers, um, no, this is a statement by the general secretary, yeah, the general secretary at the Congress of Kolkhoz shock workers. One of our achievements is that the vast masses of the poor peasants, who formerly lived in semi-starvation, have now, in the collective farms, become middle peasants, have attained material security. It is an achievement such as never been known in the world before, such as no other state in the world has made. Klevniak points out this statement came at a time when thousands were dying every day. Well, uh, l let me just uh, let me just add here that, and and underscore this point. You know the whole brand of communism under Leninism and, and Stalin, the whole selling point was that these peasants and the working class and the middle class, just the working class, not the peasants. Well, but but that most people. At, at the very least, that there'd be a very large percentage of the population that would benefit from the party, that would be a stakeholder, that would have a better life as a result of, of his uh, vision, of, of Lenin's vision. And as, as usually happens with these movements, it's not only that there isn't a better life created uh, for the, the middle classes, uh, but that life gets a lot harder because everything is, is centralized, because everything is reset, if you will, to um, and sold as this kind of uh, vision of of equality, and it's it's only that it's a it's a brand, it's a selling point. You'll own nothing and be happy is what we're being told right now. In, in reference to, you know, the Green New Deal, the Great Reset, 
uh, or you know, building back better, and any number of other different, uh, you know, kind of uh, jingoistic terms that they're using to describe uh, the the big changes that are underfoot. And um, as we speak, I mean, there there are uh, shortages of of all kinds that are already uh, making themselves apparent. Uh, in food production in the U.S. of all places, um, soybeans, uh, and and we're you know if you if you're paying attention you you hear that there are a lot of nations that that are holding on to their stuff, they are not willing to sell it right now to the West, and it it's fascinating to see how uh, this. You know this totalitarianism that we've been that the West has been railing about for seventy years, that has you know employed intelligence agencies and and covert wars and all kinds of resources to, uh, is the same group of people that are uh, this or the same types of people that are helping to bring it about here, um, particularly in the U.S. but also in other places. So uh, what we're seeing uh, on this kind of macro level of, of uh, ideological thinking, uh, which has always been ultimately to serve those at the top, um, it, it's fascinating. Uh, I mean, it's, it's also horrific uh, when you get down to what the implications of all of it are. But, um, but we're, we're kind of witnessing uh, in real time uh, this a very similar uh, set of drives and political dynamics that um, you know you can read about in in the book you've just quoted from. And there was something uh, that I also wanted to highlight. Um, two things. One was uh, the comment made uh, by um, oh shoot, what was his name? The our man in Moscow. Durante? Durante, yeah. Who said, uh, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Yeah. As if that justifies, <laughs> as if that justifies mm-hmm. all of the shit, all of the, all of the killing and uh, stealing the theft uh, and torture. No, it does not excuse any of it. And, and then at the same time, too, uh, there was a, a quote from... Or what Orwell's character said in the movie about, oh, you know, oh, what about the the uh, the schools, the free schools, and all of this, that, and the other, and and uh, the protagonist says, yeah, but what at what cost? And it's it's that's that's the thing is like you can have these grand visions, right? But at what cost are you willing to pay? Mm-hmm. And at what cost are you willing to make others pay mm-hmm. to make that? dream more than just a dream mm-hmm. like sure you can have uh untold wealth for moscow while the rest of the ussr is just destroyed is it worth it is it is it really worth it and with you know the great reset stuff you'll own nothing and be happy as <laughs> it'll be a it'll be wonderful for you know like a couple of thousand people 
But for the other several billion people on the planet, it's going to be a total freaking nightmare. And I thought that point was made pretty well in the film when uh, Gareth Jones, the protagonist, is uh, being accompanied by the Soviet uh, escort to the Ukraine, and yeah. where, where the escort says, my daughters will be watching TV movie. You know, they'll be, not TV, they'll be, they'll going, be going to the theater, to the, to the theater yeah. for free. And, uh, and... And and I will have you know pension. He and, does have. He said his daughters do go to the movie for free, and and life is so great. And life is so great, and he's and he's downing one shot of vodka after the next, and and enjoying his meal, and and you're given to understand that that is the thinking of someone who is in the party. He will do anything he is told to do precisely because he's got all the goodies. Uh, which is pretty obvious, but but when you you know when you really stop and think about it and and see you know you see it you know he takes a, he takes a nap in the the train car uh, and and Gareth Jones slips away because of he wasn't paying attention and he's enjoying his meal and he's discuss he's discussing his great life because of the party that he has allegiance to uh, without further thinking of the implications. Of the system that he's serving, um, and and so when you're when you're part of the system and you're invested in in having your lifestyle and being comfortable, then the implication is you can you can justify all kinds of of horrible things. And this is you know again where Jordan Peterson comes in with all of this. Uh, and and is one of the first to really say this in a in a major way um, in the past few years when he said that anyone anyone is capable of this type of thinking and worse and if if you're really taking responsibility as you know as a human being on this planet then you'll you'll feel the horror of the of the negative potential that you are capable of manifesting. Uh, as part of such a system, it should terrify you, because many people, uh, you know, have allowed themselves to to fall into the service of of such a system, wh whether it be, you know, right wing or left wing totalitarianism, um, out of out of personal interest, and and many people have done a lot worse. Then just enjoy the fruits of it and and enjoy the fact that their daughters can go see movies uh, under the worst of circumstances, far worse. So I thought that was um, I thought that was a particularly uh, kind of strong and uh, and necessary part of processing the knowledge of all of this stuff. How you know. How do I allow this to terrify me for my own soul, for the betterment of my own being, so that I can do everything I can to be aware of how it works and choose not to be a part of it. Uh, choose, in fact, in whatever ways possible to, to do things that'll be better for people, that will help people. Uh, and it's not a simple or easy question to answer, I don't think. Um, but it is a good question. Two more really quick points. 
Fur in his Counterpunch article makes it sound like the weather got better in 1933 and everything was fine after that. Uh, exaggerating slightly, but just because I don't like the guy. Um, what actually happened in 1933 is that Stalin reintroduced private property into the to the farms. So he w- he allowed some peasants to have their own private plots. And those plots vastly outproduced the collective farms. And in fact, when there was a a poor harvest in 1936, it was private agriculture that helped the country survive. Uh, Chlevniak writes, if the mad rush towards toward total collectivization had been adjusted to, to allow private pro- plots in the first place, peasants and Soviet agriculture would not have been utterly ruined overnight. Point one. Point two. Um, this is from a letter that Sholokhov I mentioned who I mentioned earlier wrote to Stalin on April 4th, 1933. Just 5 days after um Jones's report that was published in uh Hearst's press. He had uh Sholokhov who was a Soviet writer had just visited his home in Veshenskaya in the Northern Caucasus and he wrote the following to Stalin. I saw things I will remember until I die. During the night, with a fierce wind, with freezing temperatures, when even the dogs hide from the cold, families thrown out of their homes for failure to, to fulfill their grain quotas, set up bonfires in the lanes and sat near the flames. They wrapped the children in rags and placed them on the ground that had been thawed by the fire. The unceasing crying of children filled the lanes. At the Boskovsky Kolkhoz, they expelled a woman with a baby. She spent the night wandering through the village and asking and asking that she and the baby be allowed to get inside to get warm. No one let her in. There were severe penalties for aiding saboteurs. By morning the child had frozen to death in her mother in his in the mother arm in the mother's arms. Klevnik writes. Sholokov's letter describes how suspected hoarders were coerced into handing over their grain. Mass beatings the staging of mock executions, branding with hot irons, and hanging by the neck to induce partial asphyxiation during interrogations, among other methods. The writer did not attempt to whitewash the fact that the criminal abuses being perpetrated in the Vyshinsky district were part of a purposeful campaign by the regional authorities, not deviations by local zealots. But for obvious reasons, he did not press the point. Stalin took the news in stride, he ordered that the Vyshensky district be given additional grain assistance and that an investigation be conducted into the abuses Sholokhov described. You know, Fur makes a similar point. Fair point. Overall, however, he supported the local authorities. In a response to Sholokhov, he accused the writer of taking a one-sided view and of covering his eyes to sabotage by peasants. The local leadership, some of whom were at first condemned to harsh punishment for abuses, were ultimately acquitted. On Stalin's orders, they were simply removed from their posts and given reprimands. They were not even expelled from the party. Stalin had no intention of retreating from his war against the peasants, however many innocent lives were taken in the process. So, that's all from me. All right. Well, I think that'll uh, do it for us today. I hope we gave you guys a, a lot to think about and... Didn't trigger you too, trigger you too hard. <laughs> no, we triggered everyone. 
Um, cause yeah, this is, uh, this is the kind of the way that, uh, pro propaganda, uh, on both sides can get used to, uh, justify or excuse all kinds of mass atrocities, uh, one way or another. Um, you know, from say like being an American and, and having, uh, uh, the American and NATO bomb Libya and uh, totally destroy a country and create a migrant crisis that, uh, you know, wreaks havoc across Europe and elsewhere. Um, it's just things we have to, to keep in mind and be aware of uh, as uncomfortable as it might be and as painful as it will be to uh, destroy those illusions that we have. Nevertheless, we we must do it not just for truth, but also for uh, humanity and for our own souls. So, with that said, hope you guys enjoyed this. Hit like, subscribe, share it around, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>